0: Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me uh, to Revelation, Revelation chapter 14, looking this morning at the subject matter, victory in Jesus, victory in Jesus, and uh, let me say praise the Lord for your giving to Annie Armstrong, to our missions, uh, to our missionaries, folks, we have more than 5,000 North American missionaries and they're in parts of North America, uh, communities out west where entire community may not even have one evangelical church. And our North American Mission Board is targeting purposefully some of these pioneer areas, uh, some of the uh, largest cities in our nation, and some of these pioneer areas, and trying to get an evangelical witness there. And they depend on our giving, on our funds. And so thank you for giving. Now, talking about giving, let me also mention to you that today is a very important day in Southern Baptist life. You probably don't realize it, but it is. In fact, today in Southern Baptist life marks one of our greatest anniversaries. You see, in 1925, Southern Baptists met and came up with something known as the cooperative program. You say, well, what's that? Well, let me describe to you what life in churches was like before the cooperative program. Today, for instance, before 1925, Somebody from the Baptist children's homes might get up and give a plea for monetary support. Next week, somebody from Baptist retirement homes might get up and give a plea for funds. The week after that, somebody from our seminaries. And so forth and so on. And as you can imagine, the more somebody could get up and pull on your heartstrings, the bigger the offering would be. And all of our institutions and agents, agencies lived kind of feast to famine, maybe an abundance one month, and they'd go broke the next month. In Southern Baptist said there's got to be a better way of doing ministry and missions than what we're doing. And hence the cooperative program was birthed. It's kind of like the general fund of 50,000 churches doing together what we cannot do on our own. If You look at our missions and ministry budget, the very first line item under... The the mission section is the CP funding. We give about a hundred and hundred hundred twenty five thousand to that every year. And because of that, there's somebody rocking a little baby this morning in a Baptist children's home that your dollars go to support. A nurse walking into a Baptist retirement home. One of their patients that's maybe had a stroke this week and they're walking in and they're taking care of that person. A seminary professor will get up this week. By the way, we have 16,000 young men and women studying in our seminaries for the ministry. Seminary professor able to get up this week and teach that class because of our CP giving. You didn't know you did all that as Southern Baptist, did you? When you put in an offering here at Pitts Baptist Church, you touch the lives of people in all of our seminaries, all of our retirement homes and children's homes and all of our institutions and agencies, you and I have a part in all of that. And today, of course, in Southern Baptist life is recognizing the benefits of. CP. would you stand for the reading of God's word please Revelation 14 victory in Jesus beginning in verse 1 John says then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads and I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the winepress of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image... And receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image Father, we're so grateful today for the victory that we do in fact have in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his death on Calvary's cross. Lord, we know that we live in a fallen world. And by nature and by choice, we are sinners. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the scripture tells us that marvelous thread of redemption that climaxes with the Lord Jesus dying there at Calvary's cross to redeem us. He was buried. He was raised again on the third day. The Bible says He's ascended and at the right hand of the Father He's making intercession for the saints. And one of these days, he'll call us home. And there will be victory in Jesus forevermore. God, until then, help us to be steadfast and true. And may we be found faithful. I pray for the preaching of your word this morning. God, that you would use this time to convict, to challenge, to change. To transform hearts that we might be more like Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, we read an amazing story in chapter 6. In chapter 6 of the book of Daniel, we see that King Darius has appointed 120 leaders under him to govern his kingdom. And then in addition to those 120 leaders, he has placed three men who will be in charge of them. And of course, Daniel is one of those three. And Daniel so conducts himself that he rises to the top... And the king notices his faithfulness and his integrity. This, of course, makes all the other leaders jealous of Daniel. And they go before King Darius, and they, because they examine Daniel's life, they want to bring some type of accusation. They put his life under a microscope, and they can't find anything against Daniel. Now, folks, that's integrity, isn't it? If somebody can put your life under a microscope and find no charge against you. And so they come up with an idea. They go to King Darius and they say, Darius, we want to we ask you to, to write a decree that over the next period of time, nobody will be able to serve any other God or pray to anybody else except to you, King Darius. Well, that, of course, strokes his ego. And so he writes that decree. In the meantime, what does Daniel do? Daniel continues to do what he's always done. He serves his God. And he prays to his God. And these other leaders of course catch him doing that and they run to King Darius and they tell Darius about all that Daniel is doing. Well of course King Darius doesn't want to throw Daniel to the lion's den but he realizes he's been trapped, he's been backed into a corner and so he throws Daniel into the lion's den and the king has a rather sleepless night. He gets up early the next morning and runs to the door of the lion's den and calls out for Daniel and says, Daniel, has your God, the God that you serve both day and night, been able to protect you? And Daniel speaks up and says, yes, king, God has sent his angel, and his angel has shut the mouths of the lions, and I'm safe. And then King Darius issues another decree. He says, I, the king uh, of this kingdom, issue a decree that no other person, uh, nobody will be able to serve any other God other than the God of Daniel because the God of Daniel is the true and the living God. And so a situation of darkness, a situation of defeat, a situation of despair all of a sudden becomes a situation of victory. Ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly what we see in Revelation 14. Now considering where we've been the last two chapters in the book of Revelation, what a welcome relief this passage is to us. You'll remember in chapter 6 through 11 we were told about all of the various events of the tribulation. And then beginning in chapter 12, chapter 12 and 13 told us all about the major characters, the major players of the tribulation. We looked, of course, at the dragon who is none other than Satan himself. And then in chapter 13, we saw Satan's man on earth during the tribulation. This is the Antichrist. We also saw the false prophet, a religious figure, who's going to try to point people to the Antichrist and to the agenda of the Antichrist. And we saw how all the world is going to go after the beast, the Antichrist, and most are going to receive the mark of the beast. And if you don't receive the mark of the beast, you will not be able to buy or sell. Now today, we continue in the interlude that we've been in, but we see some very encouraging things. Very encouraging things. John opens in verse 1 by saying, Then I looked, and behold! Those words have now occurred eight times in the book, and those words always signify that there is about to be a change of scenery. And here we notice a change of scenery, and the scenery is very encouraging. Now before the narrative continues, God's going to give us another snapshot of key figures and events. Now he shows us the great contrast here with chapter 13. Chapter 13 had closed by telling us about how people receive the mark of the beast. Chapter 14 opens with those who instead have God's name written on their foreheads. And folks, here's what I want you to see today. Don't miss this, okay? Don't miss this. I want you to focus in today on the fact that despite all of the hardships of these tribulation saints, they win because the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, wins. This chapter ought to be a reminder to us of what Jesus told his disciples. He told them, In this world, you will face tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Now, the first thing I want you to notice with me this morning is the song of the redeemed. There in verses 1 to 5. And in verse 1, John tells us what he sees. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ standing there in Jerusalem. He said he saw the Lamb standing there at Mount Zion. Now the Bible tells us, for instance, in Revelation 20, that one of these days the Lord Jesus is going to come back for his church, rapture us out of here, the seven-year tribulation time, and then in his second coming he will return and he'll stand there at the Mount of Olives and he will begin what the Bible refers to as the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. That's going to be like a little taste of heaven on earth before eternity in heaven begins. And the Bible talks about that even in the Old Testament. For instance, I want you to turn with me a minute back to Isaiah chapter 65. In Isaiah chapter 65, listen to these words beginning in verse 17. Because what? God is doing through the prophet is he, is he is telling about this thousand year millennial reign. He says in verse 17 of Isaiah 65, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with him. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Now in Revelation chapter 14, John gets a vision of that. He sees here the Lord Jesus standing there on Mount Zion but ladies and gentlemen who is it who is it besides the Lord Jesus that John sees He sees the 144,000 standing with the Lord Jesus now, we met this wonderful crowd all the way back in Revelation chapter 7. There are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And as I pointed out to you when we covered Revelation chapter 7, it certainly points out to us that God is not done with the Jew yet. Now, back in chapter 7, we saw that they were sealed. The Bible says that all believers are sealed. Ephesians 1 says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You see, the moment somebody repents of their sin and comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, moves into our hearts and He seals us as belonging to God. We become God's children adopted into God's family with all the rights and privileges thereof and we are able through the Spirit to be able to cry out, Abba, Father. We're sealed. Now these 144,000 are sealed by the Holy Spirit likewise and the great thing is is that they were sealed at the beginning of the tribulation and here we see them standing at the end of the tribulation. Not one of them has been lost. Amen. Amen. It reminds me of Jesus' words in John 17 as he was praying to his heavenly father. He said, Father, while I was with them, I kept them in your name which you've given me. I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then Jesus in John 10 said My sheep hear my voice and I know them And they follow me I give unto them eternal life And they will never perish No one will snatch them out of my hand Folks God is able to save us And keep us I think of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 beginning in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, uh, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You hear what Peter is saying there? Peter is saying there that for every believer, for every child of God who has placed his or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, the Father has a great inheritance waiting in heaven for you. And it's going to be just as grand, just as glorious after you've been in heaven 10,000 years as the day that you first get there. It's unfading. And nothing will ever diminish it one bit. God is keeping it there for you. God is preserving it for you And on the other hand Here you are though Down in this world Living in a a fallen world As a believer Going through trials and tribulations And you come to faith in Jesus Christ Will you make it there? And Peter says Oh yeah, you'll make it Because you're kept Not by your power But by God's power And so you're kept And your inheritance is kept until the two are joined together. God is able to do that. Now that would be a good place for an amen. And here are these these 144,000. They were sealed at the beginning of the tribulation. And here they are at the end when Christ returns. And they are standing with the Lamb. They are with Him. I tell you what, folks, that ought to excite you because the Bible says that's going to happen to us too. That's what John sees. Now look at what he hears beginning in verse 2. He hears the sound of, of these harps playing. Harps are always used in the Word of God as a symbol of joyous celebration. Remember when Judah was taken away into exile in Babylon for 70 years? The people of Babylon told the people of Judah, said, Hey, we've heard about you folks and we've heard about the songs of the Lord that you sing. Play some of those songs of the Lord for us on your harps and sing them for us. And the psalmist says, no, 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 in the land of Babylon, there by the streams, we hung our harps on the branches of the willow trees and we could not sing because how can we sing the songs of the Lord in the land of captivity? Because singing and playing harps was for joyous occasions. And this right here describes a joyous occasion. And so John not only sees the 144,000 standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion, but he hears all the joyous celebration going on and he hears these harps playing. And here they are singing and there's a song that only the 144,000 can learn. Because you see, they've lived through the tribulation. They've stood against the climate of the age. They've preached. They've been opposed. They've been hunted down. And nonetheless, they have made it safely through. Now, I'm not suggesting that none of them has lost their lives, but I am suggesting that God has kept them ultimately safe. And their sorrows have turned to joy. And their joy is being expressed by singing. One of the things you always notice about God's people in the book of Revelation is their singing. Folks, God's people have something to sing about. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Amen. Amen. We've got a great salvation to sing about. In In fact, 1 Peter 1 says we've got a salvation that even the angels long to look into. You see, they don't know what it's like to be saved by grace. That's how great our salvation is. And we all sing about it. I think of what R.G. Lee said on his deathbed. Here R.G. Lee, that great preacher was on his deathbed and he was about to die. And all of a sudden he sat straight up in the bed and his daughter was there with him. And he said, honey, I see heaven. I see the gates of heaven open. And I'm catching a glimpse of it. And she said, daddy, what's it like? What's it like? Is it like what you've preached about? And he said, oh honey, I've preached about it, but I've not told the half of it. I've never done justice to what I'm seeing right now. Billy Sunday said, if we could get God's people, if we could get everybody, he said, to get one little glimpse of heaven, the devil would never, ever, ever have a single friend left in the world. We've got something to sing about, a glorious inheritance, a glorious salvation. And in the book of Revelation, God's people are always singing. That's why it bothers me to look around in a congregation and we'll be singing something like, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Or we'll be singing victory in Jesus and here's some old boy over there with his hands folded and looking down, and he's kind of like all oh, bah, humbug. Man, I think has he not got anything to sing about? Has he not got anything to rejoice about? If we can't sing about the salvation we have in Jesus Christ, what in the world can we sing about? Here they've been through the worst time in history and they're singing. Now, verse 4 points out they've kept themselves pure. One of the best commentators on the book of Revelation says that when taken by itself, this is John's most puzzling sentence. Another great commentator of the book says that these words are perhaps the most misunderstood words in the entire book. Grant Osborne says that the problem with taking these words literally would entail a serious denigration of marriage, an attitude missing from passages encouraging celibacy. He goes on in his commentary to say that a figurative connotation is better identifying the victorious saints as those who refuse to participate not only in immorality Remember chapter 9 said that immorality, sexual immorality is something that will be rampant in the last days. Do we see that today? Sure we do. But, but he says not only do they refuse to take part in that, but they refuse to take part in all worldly pursuits. And he quotes 2 Corinthians eleven two, too where Paul speaks of the believer being presented to Christ as a pure virgin. And so he says, yes, while these tribulation saints are sexually pure in a literal sense, they are also spiritually pure. We're reminded of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, come out from among them and be ye separate. Folks, there's to be a godly separation to our lives. We are in this world, but we are not to be of this world. Now I want you to notice another powerful statement that's said about him here. He says there in verse 4 that they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Isn't that a great statement? Obedience. That makes me think of what Jesus said in in Matthew 16, 24. He said, if anybody would come after me and be my disciple, he must deny himself and pick up his cross and follow after me. And that's how these 144,000 are living. Can you imagine 144,000 witnesses completely, totally sold out to Jesus Christ? D.L. Moody was the Billy Graham of his day. And on one occasion, uh, D.L. Moody was hearing a preacher preach. and And he heard these words. That preacher said, The world is yet to see what God can do with a man who is totally and completely sold out to him and yielded to him. D.L. Moody offered a prayer right then. He said, God, by your grace, help me to become that man. And D.L. Moody was uneducated. It said that he slaughtered the English language horribly as he preached. But everybody could tell he was anointed by God and God used him as the Billy Graham of his day. And through D.L. Moody, not just one continent, but two continents were literally shaken for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine 144,000 D.L. Moody's? That's how these witnesses are. And they're also described here as the first fruits. Now that reminds us of the festival of first fruits back in the Old Testament. The the people of Israel would, when the harvest started coming in, they would take the first part of the harvest and they would bring it into the temple and they would hold it up to God and wave it there and they would dedicate the first part of the harvest to God. That was the first fruits and the first fruits was a promise of more to come. These are the first fruits, a promise of more to be saved out of the great tribulation, a promise of more to be saved during the millennial reign of Christ. Not only, though, are they the first fruits, but notice he says they're blameless. Listen to what Chuck Swindoll says about this crowd. He says, We might generalize that description in another way. In their relationship with others, they are pure. In their relationship with God, they are obedient. Surrounded by deception and lies, they exhibit remarkable integrity. They have an unimpeachable character that results in an impeccable record. They are a living reproof to their peers, displaying proof of the gospel by their very lives. And again, they're in heaven or they're they're standing on earth there at Mount Zion with with the Lord who has returned from heaven. And they're there with the Lord and they're singing and they're celebrating. Now the second thing John wants us to see here is the message of the angels of God. Pick up reading with me there in verse 6. Because there's three angels that he talks about. He says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said, With a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Verse 9 goes on to say, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. John wants us to understand the, the, the three respective messages of each three of these angels. Now look at the message of the first angel. The first angel that we're told, he is flying about overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language. He's preaching the gospel. Now, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew uh, twenty-four, Jesus said, "This gospel of the kingdom has to be preached to the end of the eight, to the end of the earth, and then, and then the end shall come." Now, folks, I'm afraid that a lot of people misunderstand what's going on there. A lot of people think that Jesus can't come back yet, the rapture of the church. They say the rapture can't happen, not yet anyway, because missiologists tell us that the gospel has not yet gone to the ends of the earth. 196 nations out there. That number's a little bit disputed. Some say 194, some say 195, some say 196 nations Uh, uh, considering what you do with a couple of them. Even uh, the United Nations record, they're a little bit undecided about exactly how many countries we have in the world, but something like 196. But there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of language groups Over in the Mecklenburg school system, for instance, they say there are 160 languages spoken in the school system in Charlotte. 160. Thousands of people groups that our missionaries are going after trying to reach. And some people interpret the Bible to say the rapture can't happen yet because Jesus said the gospel's got to go to the end of the earth before the end shall come. But folks, I want you to think about the order of things here. I believe, first of all, we have the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation period, and then the second coming of Jesus. And before the second coming of Jesus, yes, the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth. But during the tribulation, what do we even see God doing with angels here? Angels are preaching the gospel to every nation, tribe, and people group. On top of this first angel here who's preaching the gospel, you have the 144,000. And on top of the 144,000, you have the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. And then on top of them, you have this angel right here. And so, yes, indeed, before the end, the gospel is going to be preached. God sends this angel out. But not just one angel, there's a second angel And look at verse 8, what he's proclaiming He's proclaiming fallen, fallen is Babylon Now Babylon has been interpreted as being the literal city of Babylon itself In some places in the New Testament It's also interpreted as being Rome It's also been made to symbolize the head of the one world government at the end, and it's been used to refer to the spirit of the age. Folks, whatever it is, whether it's a literal city or a system, is not critical to the text here. The point is, whatever Babylon refers to, something has happened to it, it has fallen. The pagan centers of this world, the pagan governments, the pagan people, those who have persecuted God's people, everything related to anything that is against God is going to come tumbling down. The Bible says the kingdoms of this world are, are going to become the kingdoms of Christ. And so, while this first evangelist, this first angel, is flying about throughout the sky and warning everybody to turn to God before it's too late, this second angel is flying around telling everybody that all the systems of this world are going to come crumbling down. But God's still not done yet. You see, there's a third angel. He begins talking in in, in, uh, in verse 9 Warning people not to receive the mark of the beast You see at the end of Revelation 13 The Bible says people received the mark of the beast And they were able to buy and sell and trade because of that Now while that's going on here's this third angel And he's telling people if you receive the mark of the beast And follow him you're done He warns that there's a hell. You know, people mock any talk of that today. Here's this angel, though, proclaiming the reality of hell. The Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels, he never denied the existence of a place called hell. In fact, he said it's so bad that if your right eye offends you, pluck it out, it would be better to go into heaven with only one eye than to go into hell with both eyes. It's that bad. And so Jesus said, spare no expense to stay out of hell. He told a parable in Luke chapter 16 about a rich man who went to hell. Now he didn't go to hell because he was rich. He went to hell because the Bible says that he he only had eyes for this world. He lived for the things of this world and ignored God and ignored others. And so he ended up in hell. And from hell, you know what he became? He became an evangelist. Boy, now that'd be a... That'd be a sign for a church marquee, wouldn't it? Come here, the evangelist from hell. And what he's saying is, Lord, if I can't be saved, I've got a dad and I've got brothers who are lost. God sends somebody to them. Don't dare let them come here. This place is so awful. Hell is real. And this angel is... Proclaiming the dangers of hell And he's telling people Don't receive the mark of the beast If you receive the mark of the beast You may make your life a little more comfortable today But look at what it's going to mean I tell you what God's people even need to be reminded of that Sometimes we make decisions That make us more comfortable today but are going to be against us in the long run. Jesus said, what's it going to profit a man if he gains the whole world loses his very own soul? Folks, we need to look at how we're living. We don't need to live just for today, but we need to make decisions out of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ that when we meet Jesus Christ one day and stand before the Bemis seat of Christ, we can hear those words, well done, good and faithful, servant." And that means we're going to have to make some decisions today that may not be popular. And this angel is warning people that they better do that. They better stand strong and they better persevere. Living for God may be tough sometimes, but it's worth it. Third thing I want you to see with me today, quickly, the assurance of the Spirit of God. Look at... Look at verse 13, what we find there. John says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Scholars refer to this as a beatitude. You know what the beatitudes are, right? The beatitudes are found in Matthew chapter 5. In the first part of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is saying things like Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, blessed are the meek, the beatitudes. And what Jesus is talking about is the attitudes that his followers need to display. Well, the scholars point out Matthew 5 is not the only place we find beatitude. We have a beatitude right here in the last book of the Bible. And what a comforting message it is. You see, there's a special blessing being pronounced here for those who died during the tribulation. Who who have stood strong for their faith in Jesus Christ. And he's saying they will be blessed. It also says to us, folks, even now, we don't have to wonder where our loved ones are. We don't have to wonder where we're going to go when we die if we've placed our faith in Jesus. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, if this earthly house, this tent, if the tent pegs of this frail body are uprooted and the flesh, this tent collapses We have a building from God, eternal in the heavens, not prepared by human hands. We have a home waiting in heaven. Like Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And look at what he says here. Those who have been faithful to Christ, when we get to heaven, we will rest from our labors. He's just said in the verses preceding this, of the ungodly that they have No rest But he says of those who have lived faithful lives They will rest from their labors Now a lot of people have misinterpreted this We've got some kind of image in our minds That in heaven we're just all going to be floating around On some cloud drinking iced tea, sweet tea And strumming on our harps We'll kind of wake up from a nap, and we'll chew on one of these hot now Krispy Kreme glazed donuts and go back to sleep. And we'll wake up a couple hours later, and we're just going to be floating around like that in heaven forever and ever and ever. Folks, that would get pretty boring after about a week, wouldn't it? Bible says that we're going to be working and serving God in heaven. But there's a difference between our work in heaven and our work on earth. Our work on earth is labor. We get tired from it. It's a burden to us. But our work in heaven is going to be deeply, deeply satisfied. And notice what he says. Their works will follow them. A legacy for those who have been faithful in Christ Boy you see that at funerals don't you You preach some funerals and it's like You don't know anything about the individual I mean their family tells you they were a believer But you never saw any of the fruits of Christian faith in them You don't really have anything to say as far as eulogizing the person All you can do is get up and and preach the truths of the scripture about resurrection. But as far as saying something about their life, you can't really do that. But man, there are other people you could talk all day long about how they faithfully served the Lord Jesus. That's how I want to be, don't you? He says they're blessed, they stood faithful for Christ They'll now rest from their labors And their deeds will follow them Their legacy will live on What a testimony I close with this story Robert Louis Stevenson wrote that great novel called Treasure Island His father was a chief engineer in establishing lighthouses all up and down the coast of Scotland and England. When Robert Louis Stevenson was just a boy, his father took him on an ocean voyage inspecting the lighthouses and the towers along the coast of England. They were not out very long one day until a tremendous storm came upon the sea and for over 24 hours they feared for their very lives. Robert Louis Stevenson's father made his way up to the deck There was only one man up there, the pilot, the captain of the ship The waves were so boisterous, the wind so loud, the rain so hard That the captain had taken a rope, strapped himself to the mast of the ship So he would not be swept off the deck and into the ocean When Robert Louis Stevenson's father finally made it to the deck Took one look at the face of the captain without saying a word He went back downstairs into the belly of the ship. His little boy was anxiously waiting by the door down there. When his dad walked in, young Stevenson said, Daddy, are we going to die? Are we going to die, Daddy? Is the boat going to sink? Mr. Stevenson picked up that little boy, hugged him tightly and said, No, son, we're not going to die. Ship's not going to sink. We're going to make it through. And the little boy said, but daddy, how do you know? How do you know? And that dad said to his son, he said, son, because I looked into the captain's face and I looked into his eyes. He even had a smile on his face. Folks, one of the great messages of this chapter is this. The sea may get stormy, the skies might grow dark, the sun might, may not always seem to be shining, but Jesus, the captain of our salvation, never panics. He's at the wheel, He's got everything under control, and He's going to get us safely to heaven and not lose a single one. That has come by faith to him. Would you bow with me in prayer? I want to ask you today, is that the blessed assurance that you have this morning? Can you sing amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me? If you can, then you can also sing victory in Jesus. But if there's somebody here who doesn't have that peace, I'd like to pray with you this morning. There are others who will pray with you. In fact, if you need somebody to take you out of this room, into a room off to the side of the sanctuary, and just spend a little time with you talking about the assurance that you can have in Jesus Christ. We'd like to do that. Would you come forward? If you do have that peace this morning, I want you to realize that even when life gets tough, you've got something to sing about. The Lord has delivered you from the worst that could ever happen to you, and that's hell. And until you arrive safely home in heaven, He's promised that He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Whatever it is keeping you up at night, put it into His hands right now. And are you following the Lamb wherever He goes? Is your life about His business? Is your heart pure? Are you leaving a legacy that your children and grandchildren can celebrate? If not, what changes do you need to make? Ask God to give you the strength you need to make those changes so you can leave a great legacy. Father, right now in the quietness of this moment, Speak to the hearts of your people as only your Holy Spirit can do. In Jesus' name we pray.